What's up, Chuckers? Welcome to Catch This Podcast, the number one podcast on slinging. Today we have the biblical tale of David and Goliath as our topic. Um, why David and Goliath? Well, it's probably the most famous slinging story. It's the story that's most tied to slinging that always gets brought up. So we thought we had to cover it uh, for an episode. So um, for a little bit of background, let's go to Nook. Nook, take it away. Hey, what's up, Chuckers? Thanks, Kick. Uh, so it's fairly obvious that uh, David and Goliath and singing are well associated in modern culture, even to the point where yeah, the, the term sling, when you're talking to someone who doesn't have the context of slinging in their head, like a random conversation on the street, you say sling and it's not always clear to someone whether you're talking about a sling that's attached to a, a shoulder bag or a, a medical sling for somebody who has a sprained wrist uh, until you say something like, oh, no, no, a David and Goliath sling. And then usually in that sort of conversation, we're trying to explain what you're doing to somebody who has no idea, uh, no context about the sling. You see their eyes light up and they go, oh, okay. And it suddenly makes sense. So, so David and Goliath is the context in, for many people uh, around, seemingly around the world. That's the cultural tie that that everybody seems to have in their head between the sling and all of the activities surrounding putting a rock in a sling or putting almost anything in a sling and, and hurling it. Yeah, it's it's always the uh, the go to explanation. Like uh, it it is definitively tied to uh, David and Goliath, the sling. People still sometimes think that it's a slingshot, which it, it still blows my mind that uh, <laughs> it's it's an unfortunate similarity in the name when the mechanism is so different i won't go into that rant today i'm sure there will be plenty of opportunities we may even have to do an episode about the sling versus slingshot or something later but uh that's probably gonna have to be an episode yeah i i think we're, we're gonna have to talk about that one too uh which you know the slingshots are popular so maybe maybe we could actually get some people to listen to this if we if we did that <laughs> okay so david and goliath let's let's talk a little bit about uh the story of david and goliath and and What's the what's the point of talking about David and Goliath? I, I think that from the perspective of a slinger, it kind of uh, brings new light to the story when you've actually experienced the act of putting a rock in a sling and throwing it. And slinging is one of those things that you don't just do it once and understand it. You really have to practice mm. at it and get good at it because most first-time slingers can't hit the broadside of a barn and it's and have no power when they throw it's impressive if they can get it to go forward so that's right yeah if you can get it to go in the general direction that's impressive it's it's a really hard device to master and so it's uh i think that a lot of people's misunderstandings about the sling and even the uh, story of david and goliath comes from the this feeling like oh i tried a sling once and therefore i i in my head i have a mental model of what it's like and gee it really was miraculous that he hit goliath yeah because that really is the perspective of somebody who who has 
you know, I think if you've never tried it, then then you don't have any context at all, and you just kind of say, "Oh, okay, he he used it to throw a rock and hit the guy." So anyway, let, let's let's kind of give a little bit of background of what the what the story is, just so that we have some context, and then I want to talk about the perspective of the slinger and and how it's different from the sort of Sunday school version of of what you normally hear in the story of David and Goliath, or or also the History Channel version, which is another one that you see a lot on on National Geographic or History Channel specials. the The story of David and Goliath gets dramatized in a way that I would say is uh, in many ways, probably inaccurate, or they're just filling in a lot of gaps with drama that's good for television. It's not necessarily mm. accurate. So, uh, David and Goliath. Uh, who was David? Who was Goliath? Uh, who? What was? Why were these two even fighting? Uh, so the the background is that both uh, both David and Goliath were living in this uh, region of uh, it was called Canaan, which is modern day Palestine, effectively, and the the philistines were a group that i i believe that uh, archaeologists think that they came from greece so there's some sort of a displaced people group who came across the sea and occupied the region of canaan and they're pretty much a greek cultured people they brought greek technology and greek uh, culture with them to this region on the other hand the israelites a whole bunch of slaves in egypt now they they walked from Egypt all the way up to the, this region, and they kind of invaded the region as well, roughly about the same time. So you've got these two people groups who are jostling for territory in this region, and they eventually clash, end up going to war. In this case, the reason that this particular war was happening at this time was that Israel had a brand new king named Saul, and his son Jonathan gathered some soldiers up and raided an outpost, a military outpost of the Philistines, and they didn't like that very much. So Saul and, and his son Jonathan had mustered about 3,000 men, and they had these little raiding parties. They're running around and picking at the, the Philistines, and so the Philistines responded to this 3,000-man army with a 30,000-man army, and uh, to make a long story longer, they end up in the Valley of Elah, east of Jerusalem, and then one army's on one side of the valley and one army's on the other, and it doesn't say how many soldiers of those two armies were actually at this particular battle, I don't think, but it does say in the Bible that the Philistines had a 30,000-man army and the Israelites had a 3,000-man army, so they're outnumbered 10 to 1. So you end up with this classic underdog story of uh, an outnumbered people that at the time, the Philistines had a monopoly on uh, blacksmithing. Metallurgy was high technology at the time. The Israelites were almost living in the Stone Age. In some ways, there, there is metallurgy. They're coming from Egypt, was, which was one of the most sophisticated cultures at the time as well. So they had some, some access to technology and some understanding of some of the more sophisticated things at the time. But they didn't have their own metallurgy, at least not blacksmithing in in the way that would be necessary to make things like swords and spears. They, they even had to go to the Philistines to get their tools sharpened um, because because they weren't allowed these blacksmiths. Like the technological difference is quite is pretty stark, really, between the two sides. Yeah. So so I have to modify that a little bit. The I think the Israelites had the ability to do metalwork. 
because there's stories before this as they're leaving Egypt where they're they're making golden idols and things. So they had the ability to work with gold and softer metals and do more artsy things like like make an idol, but apparently they just didn't have the technology to work with harder metals like bronze that were good for weapons. Uh, which makes sense. If, if you're a slave in Egypt, you don't want your slaves to know how to make weapons either. And now they move into Israel and the Philistines didn't want them to have the technology to build their own weapons. Uh, so so they're, they're kind of in that way being oppressed or being uh, prevented from defending themselves or creating their own weapons. So all they have are these garden, uh, almost garden tools. It's, it's farming implements like axes and I believe it mentions an ox goad, which is basically a nail on a stick. And things like that. So it's kind of, you kind of get this impression that the Israeli, Israeli army is this ragtag group, almost like the mob going after Frankenstein, you know, with, with pitchforks and torches. Yeah. Uh, that, that's kind of what I envision with this 3,000 man army. And then on the other side, you have basically Greeks with bronze armor and probably bronze swords as well. So it's hardened metal not modern day steel, but uh, very good weapons, very good metallurgy, and uh, so swords and armor. Yeah, not to be messed with. And there were only two swords in all of Israel, and those belonged to the king and his son. So you get this in, this impression that they're they're vastly outnumbered. They're technologically inferior when it comes to weapons of war. They're actually dependent on the Philistines to even sharpen. The, the things like axes that they have, they can't even sharpen their own tools. They have to go to a, a blacksmith, which is a Philistine blacksmith because they have the corner on the market. So they're at a, this major disadvantage. And then the Philistines start insulting their God and saying, saying all these things. And it looks like this little uh, nation of Israel, which just got their first King ever They're They're kind of starting to, to, grow their wings as a nation and in in the region and then all of a sudden it, it kind of looks like they're about to be re-enslaved they escaped egypt and now they're about to be re-enslaved to the philistines instead of the egyptians that's where this kind of underdog story starts to develop is the situation doesn't look very good well so so let, let's go ahead and tell the story which is basically this little shepherd boy david uh, his dad tells him, hey, go and take some food to your brothers who are on the battle lines in the Valley of Elah. So he goes, he shows up with the provisions that he was told to bring to his brothers. And here comes Goliath. This big guy comes out to the middle of the valley in between the two armies and starts insulting the Israelites. And he's challenging them to uh, what's called single combat. They're saying, you bring your best person, I'll bring my best person. And we're going to simulate a full-on battle but whoever wins, uh, we're just going to pretend they won the war and save the effort and we don't have to actually fight each other. But if, if we win, then you'll be our slaves. And, and if you win, then we'll be your slaves. That's, that's kind of the arrangement that Goliath is offering. And the dude is nine foot tall and he's wearing armor. And the Israelites don't even have more than two swords in the entire army of 3,000 people. So you kind of get the impression that the Philistines weren't taking that very seriously. They're pretty confident that that wasn't going to happen. And they were probably planning on just kind of you know, sweeping through and taking out the Israelites anyway. But they were hoping that they could take a shortcut and, and do it the easy way if they, if they could pull it off. Save the effort. 
So, so then uh, David comes along. He hears this nine-foot-tall armored giant insulting the God of Israel, and he gets upset about it. So there's this kind of righteous anger. He's David is a true believer in, in this case in that he really believes that uh, the God of Israel is on their side and that the uh, the Philistines don't stand a chance against if you if you pit the Philistine gods against the uh, the God of Israel then there's no contest and so he is so confident in this and so believes this so firmly that when he asks around and realizes that none of the three thousand soldiers in the army of Israel are willing to go and fight this guy he says I'll do it first of all he he hears Goliath insulting and he he starts asking around and saying hey what's the is it really true did did uh did king saul say that uh if you, if somebody defeats this guy that they can live basically tax free their their family's not going to have to pay taxes i believe that was the the main reward that was offered for taking goliath out and he starts asking around and his brothers hear him doing this and they just kind of roll their eyes and say shut up kid what are you doing uh why are you you know, why are you acting like you're going to go fight this guy? And then he actually goes to King Saul and says, if nobody else is going to do this, I will take on Goliath. Which is really showing, showing up the king. Right. Yeah. The, so if you read the story earlier in the Bible about how Saul became king, it says that he stood ahead and shoulders above everybody else uh, around him. So he's a really tall guy. In this case, uh, we don't know where he got the sword or the armor that he has. Uh, possibly it was stolen from one of these earlier raiding parties, uh, raiding the Philistines. We don't know. But the king and his son are the only people who actually have swords. The king has armor. And he's, if not the tallest, one of the tallest people in all of Israel. So big dude with authority, with the right equipment. He should be the one out there taking on Goliath. And yet he's just kind of hiding in his tent, hoping that someone else will do it. And then along comes this little shepherd boy and the shepherd boy, David, says, I'll fight Goliath. And he says, oh, yeah, great. OK, here, here's my armor. Here's my sword. Let me know when it's over. Yeah, just sort of completely gives up responsibility to some shepherd boy. <laughs> it's not a good look for a king who's supposed to be leading a people, uh, especially when he and his son are the ones who kind of started this fight and started picking a fight with the Philistines to begin with. So yeah, Saul, Saul is not exactly a hero in this story, but uh, he offers his armor and a sword to David. David actually tries it on, and he basically just can't move and says, yeah, that's probably a great way to get me killed. I'm going to go with what I know. And what he knows is being a shepherd, being out in the wilderness with a bunch of sheep, you know, sheep are not just food for people, they're also food for wild animals. So the, the shepherd's job is to defend all of these sheep that are wandering around in the wilderness from uh, lions and bears and, and whatever else might think that they're tasty. So, so all of these years that David had of being a shepherd, he says to the king, you know, I've fought lions and bears and won, and this Goliath guy is going to be just like one of those. So he's confident in this story that uh, he can take on someone bigger and stronger than him because he's done it before. You know, as a little boy taking on a bear or taking on a lion, uh, that that's pretty impressive to me. I, I've never been a shepherd before, so I don't have that level of context. I, I can throw things with a sling, but the, the sling really is a shepherd's tool. 
and it's something that he's actually had years of experience with. And so he says, you know, I'm just going to go with what I know. You keep your armor. I'll go take care of the giant. Yeah, he heads on down there to deal with the problem. Right. So he goes out, you know, long story short, he goes out. Goliath makes his little speech and, uh, you know, the same thing he does every day. And then David goes out and says, I'm doing this uh, in the name of, of the God of Israel. And well, he grabs five stones and then he runs out and he clocks Goliath with, with the first stone, sinks into his forehead, he falls down. And then David runs up and cuts his head off. Yeah, it's over pretty quick. <laughs> Yeah, it goes really quick, and, and that's where I think that the real story kind of deviates from a lot of the dramatization of that story, is whether you're watching a cartoon version of uh, David and Goliath Bible story, or you're watching the History Channel or National Geographic special or something that talks about it, usually there's some sort of a dramatic battle that occurs, right, where Goliath comes running at uh, at David, and David might dodge a spear or dodge a couple sword swings or something, or, you know, I've seen some versions where, where David goes running up and then does this little, uh, like, home run slide in between Goliath's <laughs> legs and dodges the sword, and then, uh, you know, accidentally drops his shepherd's bag with the stones and has to run back and forth dodging, dodging the sword until he gets his, gets his stones, and then finally he gets it in there, and there's this big dramatic wind-up and you know, the angels sing and the, the stone goes flying and takes out Goliath. I don't think that there was this level of drama going on in the battle. I think all the drama happened leading up to the battle. And then David runs out, he throws a stone. And, and the next thing that the Philistines know, their champion is flat on his face and David's cutting his head off with his own sword. I think I think that part happened really fast. Uh, yeah, I think it seems that that's... Um that's part of the psychological effect it had because then after goliath is killed all the philistines run panicked and uh, this giant army basically dissolves just at the sight of this one person being taken out i think it was the fact that it was this sort of almost anticlimactic uh, one slingshot to the forehead it was so unexpected that it took every <laughs> took everybody off guard right and and it was the least expected person going after I would liken Goliath in his armor uh, to basically a tank. He's like a like an ancient version of a tank. He's big. He's got armor. Uh, he's got all the weapons, and he certainly feels like he's invulnerable. He goes outside the battle lines, stands totally exposed in the middle of this valley, and says, "Come get me." Yeah. And so David does. He runs out and he comes and gets him. Hits him with a rock, and it's over. Yeah. And so it's. You kind of have this feeling. It, it kind of it's kind of like the the scene in Star Wars where Luke Skywalker takes out the Death Star, right? Where there's yeah. you know, it's this unexpected. This this little inexperienced guy goes in against all odds and and blows up the Death Star of of Philistine soldiers in this this Goliath. With with that, it kind of shows uh, how powerful that idea is of this of the underdog story of this. Uh person that's come from nothing or very little who then goes on to do something incredible and like fight back against the bigger bully as it were it's uh, an idea that's really stuck with human culture generally yeah I, I think everybody really loves that underdog story that this this little powerless nobody takes on this champion giant uh big big meanie who's oppressing uh the people of israel and then 
uh, and wins. Yeah. That, that's the big thing is that it actually works. I mean, yeah. there's, there's plenty of cases where the little guy takes on the big guy and doesn't win. And you just don't tell those stories because they're not very uplifting or encouraging or uh, inspiring. Yeah. He's, he's got to be able to pull it off. It, it makes a really good story in that respect because, mm. because it works and he pulls it off and you get the sense. It feels very miraculous. And you know, the story is in the Bible. And part of the point of this is that from the biblical perspective, it's a, it's a religious text. And it's the part of the point is to say, Hey, God's on your side. And therefore doesn't matter if you're, if you don't have the armor and the sword and all that. Uh, but I think as you look at it from the slingers perspective, it, it, changes the the underdog tone a little bit and and that's what i want to kind of talk about now is that's the classic story of unarmored little shepherd boy not a soldier goes up against this elite soldier with all the right equipment and he wins and and you know the the people of israel were outnumbered miraculously they panic and run away and the israelites then uh, after that, they start chasing the Philistines and taking them out as they're running away. So it's a rout. It's a complete victory in terms of not just the one-on-one battle, but also the army against army battle because of the panic that followed when David took out Goliath. Mm. So, so it does have this miraculous feeling to it. And, and I don't want to take away from that. Uh, and I'm not saying it's not miraculous. But to me, if you just take that, that story the first thing that comes in my mind is why in the world would a king let this little shepherd boy even do this? It seems inconceivable if if the deal is, if you lose, then you all become slaves to us. It seems inconceivable that they would just let this little shepherd boy go and and take on that challenge because the stakes are so high, unless they had no intention of actually following through on it, which they probably didn't. Yeah. And clearly the Philistines by running away also didn't have any intention of just surrendering and saying, okay, you beat our champion. Yeah. We guess that we guess you win. So, so the, the single combat element of this is really symbolic, or maybe it was a stall tactic and they were both trying to jostle for a better military position or something since they're both on opposite sides of the valley and there wasn't really a good place to fight mm. uh, without, without being in a, in a disadvantageous position of having to climb up out of a valley and fighting uphill. Yeah. So, so I think that's part of it is that I think that the, the single combat was symbolic of uh, the two nations. Mm. When you look at it from David's perspective and you kind of analyze his attitude on the one hand, you, he kind of looks like he's some some arrogant little kid. But then when you look at it on the back end of the story and you know that he was successful, that arrogance starts to just look like extreme confidence. Yeah, he knew what he was doing. Yeah, he seems to know what he's doing. He he says, this guy's going to be just like the lions and bears that I've taken on in the past. So it, he's not inexperienced in this act of trying to take out something bigger, stronger, uh, faster than him mm. he has he has his equipment as a shepherd which is a, a stick a staff and his sling so he has all the tools he needs and he has the experience years of experience using them to defend his sheep and so he's very confident that he's going to pull this off it's not it's not like they just grabbed some kid off the street and said here here you go fight this guy he actually volunteered for it willingly and he ran out he he was probably still terrified, but he was so confident that he ran out toward Goliath into this valley and just takes the guy out. 
And and I think that if you if you have a little bit of experience with a sling, one, you start to understand how hard of a shot that is to hit somebody in the forehead with a rock. Yeah, it it doesn't have the distance he was from Goliath, but I mean, almost any distance to get that sort of a pinpoint shot straight to the forehead is is difficult. Um, considering it's a battle, I mean, he would have had to have been some distance away. Uh, he, he runs in, but I mean, there's still going to be a fair distance for him to get that shot. So it's it, it's very impressive to be able to hit that sort of a target. Yeah, and and uh, you know, it says that Goliath had uh, had a helmet on. So a glancing blow probably would not have had the same effect, but hitting him square in the in the forehead means that it was a basically a dead center shot, a, a very accurate shot, which anybody who's tried slinging knows how difficult accuracy is. Uh, however, it it is possible to have really good accuracy. There are slingers out there who who are very accurate with a sling, and there's another passage in another in the book of Judges in the Bible where it talks about uh, this tribe of Israel called the Benjamites, and there's a there's a, a group of elite Benjamites, and it says they can sling a stone at a hair and not miss. It's I'm not sure whether that's being hyperbolic or whether they're really saying that all these guys were accurate, but it it seems to imply that it it wasn't just this uh, this slinging savant who somehow miraculously has this talent that nobody else has. But there, there's an entire army of slingers who are accurate in another part of the Bible, which implies that there is some method of learning or training uh, to achieve a high degree of accuracy. Yeah, and that that sort of degree of accuracy is is possible. It is a miraculous shot in this instance, but it's not not impossible for people to get that sort of level of ac- accuracy. Right, and and David, as a shepherd, uh, spends all of his time out in the field with nothing better to do than throw rocks. So he is very well practiced at it. And also it's not just entertainment for him as a shepherd, but he literally was using it to defend a flock of completely defenseless sheep. Yeah. It's his day to day. Yeah. That's his day to day job. So, so he was actually very well equipped and very competent in this case to use the tools that he used to take out Goliath. And it says that the stone sunk into his forehead. So on the point of the armor, one of the things that I find, I guess, entertaining about the story is a lot of times people talk about the helmet of Goliath as if when a rock hits the helmet, it's not going to do anything. And and so a lot of times you'll have these scholars who are uh, who have conjecture to say, well, the at the time the helmets would look in a, look a certain way, and there's this little hole in where the metal is, right above the the bridge of the nose. And David must have hit him right there where there was no armor in order to kill Goliath. And when it says that it sunk into his forehead, uh, I almost wonder if he hit the bronze helmet square on, and the the bronze helmet sunk into his forehead as well. Yeah, I mean, bronze is not the strongest of metals, and comparing it to modern day steel it's it's they're two completely different things because back then to get a an even thickness would be very difficult they were they were very rarely all the same thickness all the way through uh the the quality of the bronze would be nowhere near as good as the quality you can get nowadays let alone with modern steel which is so much harder so i think a a good strong hit from a sling to a bronze helmet i mean it's it's gonna rattle your brain it, it will protect but yeah it's it's not gonna it, it wouldn't save your life in my no. opinion 
um, if it's a really if it is a strong hit straight to the forehead, you're going down. Yeah, I, I think you know just because there's a little piece of metal just outside your skull, if you look at how much momentum is in a sling stone, especially slung from an expert slinger, you can hurt somebody helmet or not. It can do some serious damage and. Yeah. Something like a, a bronze helmet would stop a bow and arrow, stop the arrow, because it, it, it it's not going to penetrate a layer of bronze. Yeah, it can deflect but it. But the yeah. blunt force trauma from this heavy rock, yeah, I, we don't know how big. It doesn't say how big the rock was, uh, but probably something like a fist-sized stone. And, you know, the momentum involved in that, it transferring that momentum will transfer right through a bronze helmet and... Even in modern days, you look at, uh, there's a lot of study about football players and the kind of brain injuries that they get from hard hits mm. through a helmet with modern day padding and all, all these things. It, there's plenty of medical evidence today that uh, it could have done some damage. Easily, yeah. And, and clearly, whether, whether he hit the helmet or whether he hit him directly on the skull, it, uh, it was enough to take him out of the fight. Yeah. Well, just going from my own experience of using a giant frying pan that's made of steel, I'm not entirely sure of the thickness, but it's a, a good few millimetres, and I've managed to dent that severely, and I am not the strongest slinger, uh, but even I've managed to put some significant dents in this much thicker, stronger metal pan than a than a bronze helmet, so yeah, I can I can completely see it horribly deforming and really hurting someone who's wearing... Uh, wearing that bronze helmet that's getting hit. One of the things I find interesting about that is that when when scholars make these conjectures about whether he hit a little little gap in the armor or something, they're still underestimating the sling. Yeah, and they're they're still just assuming that if a rock hits a piece of metal, it's not going to do anything. But the the physics is pretty sound. The transfer of momentum is gonna cause some damage yeah. so it doesn't really matter whether he hit the helmet or whether he just hit the skull it, it it's not really debated that it sunk into his skull and took him out of the fight and then you know just for good measure he walks up and cuts his head off so he's he's extra dead yeah. at that point anyway and there's, there's no question about it it was whether he just stunned him knocked him unconscious or killed him with with the rock itself he was definitely dead by the end of it. Well, I mean, also taking into consideration the state of uh, medical care at, at, in those sorts of days. I mean, a skull fracture. I mean, that that could easily be fatal back then. Anyway, um, even if he did survive it, he could have easily died later. Um, so yeah, it's it it shows that the sling is is not a toy. It it really is a deadly weapon, and that's so often forgotten that it is, as you said, underestimated. It's interesting that this story is so well, so well known and so um, embedded in culture, and yet the sling still is underestimated. The fact that the most famous story about a sling and a slinger is this kid managing to kill uh, like a nine foot tall giant, and people still don't think the sling is really all that effective. Like it's kind of strange that it still has this reputation for being underpowered or not not a serious weapon, despite the fact that it's well attested that it's a serious weapon. It was used in warfare. It was, it was used to kill a giant even. So yeah, it, it's amazing that it, it is still underestimated today. And I think some of that does come from the experience that people that first time slingers who are not dedicated slingers uh, get from the sling. You know, they pick up a rock and they put it in a sling. A lot of times they'll make the sling themselves 
So you have a sling of unknown, possibly questionable quality and construction, and then they'll just pick up whatever rock they have handy and try throwing it and it goes behind them or goes up in the air and lands on top of their head or something and just kind of bounces off, you know, somewhat harmlessly or with, with a little bit of discomfort. Yeah. But, you know, there's a huge difference between someone who's just learning to even keep a, keep a stone in a pouch, which depending on how the sling is constructed, I've seen some, some pretty janky slings where it's a miracle that yeah. anything stays in the pouch, let alone could take out a giant. I've made some of those slings as well. <laughs> oh, I, I think everybody has made those. Everybody who's made a sling has made one of those slings at some point. Yeah. <laughs> so, so your first impression of the sling is almost always wrong. And you, know, it, you really have to spend a little bit of time understanding the sling and, and using a good, well-constructed sling in order to understand what you can do with it. Yeah. I, I also think it's interesting. This story is kind of a clinic on, on slinging in some ways because it, it talks about how he went down to a little creek bed and picked out five smooth stones. And that's another thing that if you've tried slinging random jagged rocks they can get caught up in the pouch and they they're very unreliable and very inaccurate. The, the aerodynamics of a jagged rock are not great, but a nice smooth river rock is, is about the best natural bullet you can find. It is quite amazing actually seeing these, these sort of jagged uneven rocks, like how, just how much they can curve and twist off and they can go seemingly at right angles almost as soon as you release. Having that smooth ammo is, is really uh, important to, getting those good long straight shots was, and this was obviously known even back then like thousands of years ago yeah obviously david david knew what he was what he was doing yeah. because he went out of his way to go down to this little creek bed and picked the right ammo and i've heard this is secondhand knowledge but i believe that the stones in the valley of elah where this battle took place are a particularly dense type of stone which makes them more ballistically favorable like the Greeks and the Romans used lead bullets because of the density. And even today in a gun, we use lead because it's very dense. And so that extra mass per unit volume really helps with something being stable while it flies through the air. So in this case, having these extra dense rocks made them more effective as projectiles. As a modern slinger, I can attest to that as well. Like I've been to the uh, competitions in the Balearic Islands and... Um... The stone that they have there is much lighter limestone, which as soon as it hits uh, the target, it'll often explode into a cloud of dust. But the that sounds like a lot of fun. It is. It is a lot of fun. <laughs> but the the rocks that we have here in Finland are hard granite that are left over from um, glaciers, so they're already perfectly rounded a lot of the time. So we have very good sling stones. But with it being this really hard granite, I've never broken one of these stones. I've I've chipped them uh, if I've hit hit a stone against it, but they really are super dense, super heavy, and is exactly what you want when slinging. You want that dense, heavy ammo, so and and also rounded, um, just like uh, David went for. So he it really shows that in this story, David really knew what he was doing. The whole the whole thing centers around the fact that he he is an expert at slinging. It would seem. Yeah, and which. which to a degree kind of undermines a little bit of that underdog uh, element of the story in that here you have someone who is highly competent, highly skilled and properly equipped to 
basically make this giant elite soldier's equipment uh, worthless, right? Because now mm. if the armor isn't going to stop a sling stone and stop the transfer of momentum through that armor towards the incapacitating of the soldier, then all that armor does is slow him down. So David used a, a set of equipment that actually turned the advantage of Goliath into a disadvantage in that case. And that's actually something that we're, we'll almost certainly talk about later, maybe in the, in the next episode, more on that later. But the one of the sort of things that you often see with slinging units in history in battles is that they were very fast moving. They were They were used as ranged troops that would move around the battle that they weren't static in one position they were lightweight they didn't have much armor they often didn't have shields there's something that's consistent again with the story in that slingers usually are those quick on their feet troops that are able to move around and outmaneuver much more heavily armored troops yeah they're skirmishers yeah skirmishers that's the term yeah so it it is interesting just how much this story reflects the history of slinging and how true to life it is and, and yeah the the tactics are sound right i mean yeah. if that that was one of the most popular ways throughout thousands of years of history you know particularly the greeks and the romans there's a lot of well documented history of slings being used on the battlefield and that's the way that they used slingers was exactly the way that david used his sling against goliath you run in you get the job done and you get out of there yeah so so we have tactically sound and uh sound physics in the choice of, of a very dense, smooth stone. And so all the things are, are plausible in terms of the choices that were made. And, and if you analyze it from the perspective of a slinger, the story is rock solid. It's not just some aggrandized story for, for uh, convincing people that the God of Israel is the best. There's also this factual background behind it that says this was really a, a good approach to this battle and it's it's a good response when you don't have swords and you don't have armor it's a really good way to respond and take away the advantage of the other side yeah so so the the underdog element i i really think he's more underestimated than underdog in the one-on-one combat uh now the they're still outnumbered 10 to 1 and in terms of the battle it still makes a great underdog story and it's still you can't really take away from the the miraculous side of these people who are outnumbered and don't stand a chance. But the the David versus Goliath, there it really isn't clear to me that Goliath had the advantage from the beginning. Uh, when you look at the the skill and the choices that David made, I think he was highly competent. And the fact that he's taking out uh, bears and lions with his sling means that he's not just competent but also experienced in using a sling in this type of situation. The sling has always been, uh, I think, underestimated, which is why even in the story that's uh, so many thousands of years old, it's it's still, it's, it was still seen as, um, I don't know, uh, I guess miraculous or unexpected that David would win against Goliath. But it, I think it's because of that, that of it being tied to being a, uh, a poor man's weapon. It's a shepherd's weapon. It's, uh, something that hasn't been documented very extensively there aren't manuals uh on how to use it uh like with other weapons like swords and uh and axes and other more established weapons sh- shall we say uh this thing has always been sort of in the background um and i think it is because it's tied to the sort of lower classes of being 
being a shepherd's tool that would often be used by boys like David, um, who would be the ones left to tend the sheep. But it, again, with being able to take on lions and bears and wolves and other large predators and and people were were okay with leaving their their young kids out there in the fields with these animals as long as they had a sling with them it does show that it's it's something that's it's kind of it is strange that it's been so underestimated because it has had such it's it its use has been recognized for so long so it's this very strange thing before Samuel Colt and all, uh, you know, calling the gun the great equalizer, the sling was the great equalizer for most of history. Yeah. Right. It gives the ability of a of a young shepherd boy to take out the most elite armored soldier of the time. It, it evens the playing field. And um, with that as well, like talking about how the Israelites only had two swords for the entire nation, this with a sling you can make it out of almost anything. You know, we've we've had uh, contests on the sling forum before, like making them out of anything we can find, like the trash sling challenge. Yeah, I made one out of a bag of Doritos. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I I think I was the one who started that challenge on the forum. Was it you? Okay. Uh, originally, and and yeah. I did that for that very reason because uh, a lot of times, even in the slinging community, we we kind of get wrapped around the axle. We get obsessed with making these very elaborate, intricate, beautiful slings. And there are people who will spend months. I've done this before. I spent, I just recently spent about two and a half months making one sling uh, with very, very uh, intricate weaving. And, and, and the sling I made was nowhere near as artistic or beautiful as some of the slings that are made on the forum. But you can make a functional sling out of trash. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, so we don't know if David's sling was made out of grass or if it was made out of uh, wool would be a likely choice since he was a shepherd and had access to sheep. But we don't, we don't know what it was made of or how it was made. We do know that there are, uh, there are a few historical examples of slings coming out of Egypt that were very intricately woven, but that doesn't necessarily mean that David's was that way. Yeah. We don't really know what it was, what it was uh, made of or how it was constructed. But if I can make a functional sling out of a bag of Doritos or kick can make a, a functional sling out of a trash bag or a bread bag, yeah, I've done that, uh, which we've done. Yeah. Then it, it, that that's part of it is it doesn't really matter. If you know how to make one well, then the materials are, uh, everywhere and you can't stop someone from making an effective weapon because there's rocks and there's cordage material everywhere you look and with the historical examples um they would have been even more familiar with different types of cordage as well um i mean last year i just started uh making cordage out of nettles those stinging nettle plants and um from and also with other natural materials like uh lime bast which i don't think those things are were necessarily available in 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 the areas that david was uh living but even so that that every area has their own plant or material that can be used for for cordage and if you can make something out into cordage you can make it into a sling very easily and then you can also just make a sling straight from uh, hide or leather like it's it's really just a strip you can just one one strip of material and it can be uh, a sling so i do really like that about the sling it's a it's a sort of democratic weapon it's it's it can be made by anyone and used by anyone there's no 
there's no sort of restrictions almost as long as it can throw the stone forward it can be a sling so it's it, it's a it's a very uh it's a good positive i think and it's one of the reasons i got into slinging really uh i saw a picture of a sling and i thought i could make that and i did and then i've been using them and making them ever since like it's a lot cheaper and easier to make than a bow it's uh it's nowhere near as complex or need to you don't need nearly as much of equipment as it would be to make a sword or some metal object it's it's a very functional simple tool well at the end of the day yeah it it's very simple to make it's it's not necessarily simple to it well it's simple to use in principle it's simple yeah. to use but one of the things that I really love about the sling is there's so much depth and so much challenge involved. The it I I think the best analogy for someone who hasn't been slinging is probably golf. Yeah. Because in golf you're trying to hit a little ball with a with a long stick and you're uh, it's really all about you. You can get really obsessed with the equipment side of golf and slingers do the same thing with slings. But at the end of the day, it really the the main thing. Uh, comes down to the skill and the the body mechanics of how you use whatever equipment you've got. You could take a, an expert golfer and give them relatively cheap equipment and they're going to do fairly well. Mm. Uh, and you can give the best equipment in the world to an inexperienced golfer and they're not going to do very well at all. And that, that's very similar to how slinging is. I think that's, sort of, that's a good comparison between golf and slinging because, you know, with golf, the first step is hitting the ball. The next is hitting the ball in such a way that it goes where you want it to go. And with a sling, it's the first step is keeping the stone in the pouch and getting it to go forward. And then you work out, okay, I've got it going forward. Now I need to actually hone that into where actually I want to hit. So I think that's quite a good uh, analogy that it's that same sort of uh, difficulty levels that you have to first get over that hurdle of hitting. Then you actually have to get to, okay, controlling the ball and where you want it to go it's good analogy yeah and that's that's part of what's also addictive about both golf and slinging is that you have this feeling like you're in control but then it doesn't do what you want it to but you think you can get it to do what you want to so you keep trying and trying and trying and uh it's that challenge is uh it really is addictive and it's in a fun way yeah where you just if you're competitive with yourself, you just keep wanting to push the limits and do more and more. So to that point, uh, I, I think we're just about done with the story of David and Goliath as it relates to slings. Um, so we're, we're kind of moving into talking about slings generally at this point, but yeah. <laughs> so one thing that I wanted, this is a good opportunity to mention that we're trying to put together some example videos to go along with this podcast of, uh, of different styles of slinging and just, just kind of have some centralized organized information about slinging for people to reference and for us to reference as well. Cause when we go later to talk about different styles of slinging and that sort of thing, it'll be much easier to go and see what we're talking about on a video yeah. than just to have us verbally explain it. So uh, we're putting together some videos. I don't know how many of the videos we're going to have up and public by the time we first published this, this first podcast, but You'll see in some of these videos, some of these examples, uh, examples of really good accuracy. We've got a, a clip where uh, a friend of ours in Australia named Mursa hits a card from, that's between two bottles and, and knocks it out from between the bottles and the sand pours from the top bottle to the bottom bottle. Uh, just extreme accuracy 
with a sling. So we'll actually not just talk about the extreme accuracy of David and Goliath, but we want to actually demonstrate this and help people to see it. And we would love for people listening to this to actually try these things for themselves and go out and experience the sling. It's not just this historical anomaly or some, some uh, story from the Bible. You can make your own sling out of almost anything, or you can go and buy a sling or find somebody who can make a sling and try it for yourself and, and experience it. And it's, it really is an addictive, fun activity for anybody, child or adult, to do. Like with likening it to golf, there's a lot of other sports that are very much like it that have that same feeling, like thinking of uh, snooker or a pool, like billiards type. Uh, that It's that wanting to get particular accuracy and doing it through control of something that isn't necessarily in your hands, like uh, the, you can control the sling, but it's knowing how to use the sling to then influence the stone. Um, there's a lot of sort of aspects to it that, that really like appeal Um that I think would appeal to a lot of people that it's that striving for accuracy and uh or trying to get distance as well it's another uh another aspect it's it it's very fun everyone should have a go <laughs> it is a lot of fun and and so you know kick you said you you live in finland and you've got stones everywhere and you usually go to a park and sling stones I'm, I live in Texas, but I live in the middle of a city. I'm in a big city, and I have a relatively small backyard. I can get at most about 15 yards out of out of my backyard. So what I do is I just pick up a tennis ball, and I'll throw a tennis ball, and it's relatively safe. You could still It would still hurt. Uh, they get moving pretty fast. It would mm. still hurt if somebody got hit with the tennis ball, but I'm not going to break windows. I'm not going to do any serious damage. So it enables me to go out in my own backyard and do some slinging, get some experience with it in a relatively safe way. And I, I would actually recommend if you're a new slinger, uh, if you if you haven't done this before, use something like a tennis ball to get started with just to kind of get a feel for it at least. If you have a place where you can safely sling stones, that's great. But if it's going to be going in any direction, you do need to be cautious. You're still responsible just like with a gun. You're If you pull the trigger, you're responsible for wherever that bullet goes. The same thing is true of a sling. So it's best to start with something like a tennis ball when you're first starting out, but you can have a lot of fun and you can really push your own skill and your own limits, even in your own backyard with the tennis ball. And you, it, even that will really enrich your understanding of some of these stories, like the story of David and Goliath. It it helps you to, uh, it helps to connect you with the story, even if you're just throwing tennis balls in your backyard or playing fetch with your dog. And in fact, I've even seen people that, and I've done it myself actually. You can even sling inside if you're very careful. <laughs> the good, the good thing with the sling is that you can use so many different types of ammo as well. Like, like I said, you can use stones and tennis balls, but people have even used uh, marshmallows for in- indoor use. And then uh, uh, sock balls work great. You just take take a pair of socks and roll them up into a ball. Um, that can work indoors. I I have done that. I have I have videos. In fact, I have video proof that I've done it. Um, of course, you still have to be careful, like we said, but it's it is possible. That's that's kick slinging on YouTube. Kick slinging, yeah. If you want to if you want to find him, look up kick slinging on YouTube, and you'll find you'll find him uh, turkey styling. Uh, was it was it a sock ball or was it a wad of paper? It was sock balls. I've I've used a lot. Yeah, sock balls. Yeah. Okay, there you go. But uh, yeah, so should we uh, wrap it up there? Um, I think we've exhausted david and goliath and i'm glad that we've got it out of the way because it, it it is the the main point of reference for all things so now that that's done we can go in depth into the 
into other aspects of slinging i think yeah i I think it's a really great story and it's a great way to inspire and connect people with the sling even in modern day because it's something that is uh in it's it's in people's consciousness and and it is a great underdog story but all but from the perspective of the underdog it it it's an empowering uh device Mm. So I, I really love it's it's not just an obligatory thing we have to talk about. It really does it is a really good symbol of the sling itself and how the sling is often underestimated and empowering and sort of democratizing to people using the sling. Uh so so it's absolutely great. But but yeah, I think I think we're at a good stopping point yeah. to where we could uh move on. So what are we gonna talk about next time, Kip? Well, uh I think we're gonna tackle conflict generally with the sling. Uh I know that we're going from a violent and bloody story to more blood and violence but um you know we we gotta we gotta get that controversy going for the start of this podcast get some people interested uh, that's right you know, get that's those right. clicks so, so we'll go from religion <laughs> to politics yeah we gotta get those viewers in or listeners i guess that's right we gotta gotta drum up some controversy and, and start some debate yeah. on the internet because that's what the internet is for right exactly so yeah we're gonna do conflict generally uh that that's gonna cover everything from you know, wars and battles up to more modern day riots and protests uh, that the sling is featured in. Um, so it's it we're going to cover quite a lot of area, but you know, it's it's an important aspect of the sling. It's an important part of history. We're going to go from a very from one specific one on one battle to kind of this broad, you know, how the sling is relevant to uh, conflict generally, and, and it kind of follows naturally from that empowerment of the sling and the the underdog element and some of that the symbolism all of all of that plays into conflict later as well so i I think it's going to be a good discussion and i i think we could probably do dozens of episodes about specific and general conflict topics but uh we hit david and goliath and then then the general conflict and then i think that kind of frees us up like like you were saying earlier that frees us up to move into some of the more sporty and personal challenge and some of the yeah. more fun elements of slinging as well a bit less blood and guts just just a little bit less <laughs> you know because we we still love love the gory on on uh, catch <laughs> okay so all right so uh, so um i i do want a, one last announcement uh we have a website www.catchthispodcast.com and down at the bottom, there's a place to enter your email, and it will update you whenever we post a new episode or we, we post new information uh, on on the website. And if you do that, and I have your email address, then I'm going to pick somebody at random from the group that has signed up up to the point of, uh, we'll say, a month from, from now, whenever this podcast is broadcast. I'm going to randomly pick somebody, and I'm going to send them a sling uh, just as a thank you for being in the audience and being interested in this podcast. And I can say that's a good deal. I've, I've had some of Nook's slings. Um, they're, they're good quality. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good deal. Free is the best deal. Yeah. <laughs> all, all it costs is a subscription. So do go sign up. Um, as we already mentioned, we also have a YouTube channel that's catch this on YouTube. And we have an Instagram as well. Catch underscore this underscore podcast at catch underscore this underscore podcast and on there we'll have a few posts uh relating to the episodes and and as we said with the youtube channel we'll have instructional videos some example videos if there isn't that much when this episode goes up just subscribe and you'll get updated when we update those videos when we get them up there so yeah 
I think, uh, yeah, with that, let's uh, cue the outro. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at catchthispodcast.com, on the singing.org forum, on YouTube, and at catch underscore this underscore podcast on Instagram. Music by Wintergarten. Catch you next time. <laughs>